we're just spending more and more on inputs or we're having to put more and more chemicals in the tank and we just don't seem to be getting anywhere. It's more like a a pause, take a look and see what you can do differently. In some cases, just letting the system go and kind of settle into a new equilibrium. But I think that can be done. But uh, more realistically, instead of always looking for what's the solution to the problem is trying to get to the root of the problem and going from there. Welcome to the Growing the Future podcast, where our future is always bigger than our past. Being in the business of growing food for the world is a massive challenge, not for the faint of heart. Join us, the Aberhart Brothers, as we talk to progressive folks who like to innovate, collaborate, and transform the agricultural landscape. If you want to cultivate a growth mindset in agriculture, then let's get growing our future together. Hey now, it's Dan Eberhardt here, today's host of the Growing the Future podcast. We are back with season four, episode five. You can find our newsletter at growingthefuturepodcast.ca to get emails about our new episodes and find all of our past episodes there. Make sure to give us a follow on all the social media platforms and our YouTube channel. You can also find the Eberhardt family of companies online, starting with eberhardtfarms.com to learn more about our farming operation in Saskatchewan. SureGrowth.ca to learn more about the precision agronomy consulting services they offer there. And ConvergenceGrowth.com, where they accelerate solutions across food, health, and agriculture. And last but not least, AberhardAgSolutions.ca, where we deliver one-of-a-kind fertility solutions of the future to your farm. Our next guest has 15 years' experience in dry land and irrigated specialty crop agriculture. And he just happens to host his own podcast, which we'll talk about. He grew up in a corn and soybean farm in Ontario, and he worked his way over to southern Alberta, where he now specializes in cover crops. With his experience and knowledge, he has created a cover crop course that contains 37 lessons. And if you stick around till the end, we're going to give the first 10 listeners that sign up a little bit of a discount. So stick around for the deal. By the end of this course, you will have a plan for when and when not to implement cover crops on your farm. I know there's a lot of questions out there about this whole space, so I'm sure we're going to be illuminated shortly. You can find this man on Twitter, LinkedIn. You check out his website at www.plantsdigsoil.com or tune into his podcast, Plants Dig Soil Podcast. Welcome to the show, Scott Gillespie. Yeah, thank you for having me here. Well, I appreciate you coming on and I'm excited to talk to you because I'm, I know I, like many others, have lots of questions about this space, and I was really excited when I was looking at the Western Producer the other day, and there it was, the first time I've ever seen this, the first of many, I'm sure. You build yourself as a regenerative egg coach, Scott. How does one become a regenerative egg coach? What is your background, and how did you get to where you are today? I'll just say it's not a huge difference, but I call myself a regenerative egg consultant. Okay, cool. Thanks for clarifying. We'll go with that. But briefly, I've always been interested in, I guess, the alternative ways or doing things just a little bit differently than the, the mainstream. And so how I got to Western Canada was I did a master's with Dr. Martin Entz and Dr. Byron Irving at one Manitoba and one's Byron's at Egg Canada in Brandon. And it was just, it was about... There was a, a movement at the time or an idea at the time called pesticide-free production. 
out of Manitoba. And the idea was that uh, there were growers saying, we're almost pested, we're almost organic. What can we get a premium for it? And I think they picked the wrong name for it because when that went through the regulatory agencies, they said, no, you're not pesticide free because you're, you're still using chemicals in the off season, but you're just not spraying them on the crop. But the idea was to see if we could grow things without pesticides in crop. And my project was looking at, at ways to, to do some different weed control strategies, like with trying to stimulate weeds with light tillage and early and late planting and stuff like that. In the end, really, the main driver was the weed seed bank. So if you had a lot of weeds in your soil, then it, it really doesn't matter. You've, you're, you can get a whole bunch of them gone and then a whole bunch of them come right back up in the crop. But I was always fascinated by that. So then Alberta, I got a job in the irrigated potato industry, which is just very different than almost any other type of agriculture. It's, it's a very intensive crop. And of course, very intensive on the soil because you you have to make hills, you have to dig them up and, and that type of stuff. But I've always been interested in looking at what is now called regenerative. It's taking practices from conventional and organic and putting them together into a newer system. How fine or defined is the line here? Being careful with labels, but when we, when we get into regenerative, what do you consider regenerative? That's where it can get really challenging because it's being used by large food companies now and they're talking that they're going to be regenerative but it's it's in in their versions it's going to be a lot in how they define it and what they actually come up with because there's no standards there's no set definition of what it is to me the farmers that were the that kind of got it started or were the first first ones looking at it or the first ways of going at it were basically it's more like a pausing of what they're doing. And they're just saying, we're just spending more and more on inputs or we're having to put more and more chemicals in the tank and we just don't seem to be getting anywhere. So just kind of, it's more like a, just a, a pause, take a look and see what you can do differently. Mm-hmm. And then also just in some cases, just letting the system go and kind of settle into a new, a new equilibrium. But I think that can be done, but uh, more realistically, it's kind of just instead of, I guess, instead of always looking for what's the solution to the problem is trying to get to the root of the problem and going from there. So it seems like the answer to the question of what, what the definition is, is it sort of, it depends on, on who you are and what your goals are. Do you think it would behoove us to have a broader definition stated and defined and worked within that we could use to, to get a premium or, or market it? I'm not sure on that. The original, the original organic movement or the original as the organic was being developed, I don't, I think they, they expected that it would, it should just be something that everybody would do. Mm-hmm. And they really didn't want a premium. They didn't want really two different systems, but then they realized they, the over time, I guess, is they realized like, they need a premium to make it work. So then they had to come up with definitions and standards. I think the problem with making regenerative definition at this point is going to be like, for example, there can be a lot of regenerative that talks about the the need for having livestock integrated. And that's just not going to happen on a lot of acres. It would be the cattle or some type of livestock do bring benefits, but 
we can't have livestock on every acre across the prairies. There just isn't the market for that. We have to be realistic in what we're we're looking at. So I think the best working definition that I have is just that we're taking best practices from both conventional and and organic, and we're trying to make a system that's getting better in time. And actually, I was just going to say an, an example that I've put in the course is the idea of if we can learn how to get cover crops to control the weeds or at least suppress the weeds, at least give some be part of the answer for weed control, is that when you're done with the cover crop, it goes, it, the, the tool, which is the cover crop, goes into the soil and actually contributes to the soil. Whereas when, say, like a herbicide, when you're done with the herbicide, it just disappears. And it may or may not have any detrimental effects, like depending on what the herbicide is, but the tool disappears. Even if you expand it to think of an organic system where they're using flaming to control the weeds, well, the, the tool disappears almost instantly. It might the, the flaming can be very effective in killing weeds, but then immediately it's the it gasses off and the heat goes into the atmosphere and it's gone. So it doesn't have any lasting impact. If we can look at things that kind of contribute to the system or have multiple benefits, I think that's where we can really benefit from it. Hmm. I never thought of cover crops in that context. That certainly is an added benefit. So starting at the beginning, if I'm a producer looking at the Western seducer, as I like to call it, and I see, oh, there's a regenerative ag consultant in here. I've heard so much about this. The first seven pages of the Western seducers are talking about regenerative ag every episode. If I called you up, I said, okay, why would I want to be a regenerative ag farmer? Why would I want to farm in this direction? What are the benefits and how do I start and how painful it's going to be? And I have a million questions. Where do you start with that conversation with the producer? The very first thing is you've got to be solving a real problem right away. If your system is working, there's not going to be a lot of benefit to changing because you might end up spending more money than you're actually getting back on it. Now, in terms of weed control, I think that's probably going to be one of the biggest ones where the biggest benefit can be is getting ahead of a resistance problem. So you might not have a problem now, but if you get resistant weeds growing in your field, and they always appear to show up all of a sudden in one season, but they've been building for a long time. And so that's where, if you want to address a, a real world issue, and in my area, soil erosion has become a bigger thing recently with uh, the winds that we get here over the winter. Well, just to clarify for the audience, I'm not sure that we said, but you're in Lethbridge, right? Right. I'm in Tabor actually, but yeah, Tabor, the, the Lethbridge, yeah. between Lethbridge and Medicine Hat, right in the Right in the in the south part of the province, right close to the border, like Chinook country. So we're about about two hundred kilometers from the Rockies, and the moist air comes from the mountains, and then it drops the rain on the BC side. But then when it it hits the comes over the mountains, it comes screaming down, and just and it rapidly warms up. For example, today it's minus ten right now, and it should be plus five by this afternoon. <laughs> which isn't a big one. The biggest ones have been 20 degrees or more. Like I actually did, I did actually go and uh, chase a Chinook or chase the line one time. And it was, it was all within a kilometer that it changed 20 degrees. And it, the, the borderline of these winds was, and the temperature change was, I think it was like minus 17. And then the next mile road later, then it was plus three. <laughs> 
So you're saying the physical line was like that? That, that it was start. that defined. It, they're not always like that. And it was calm where it was cold and it was windy where it wasn't. So when they come and they can blow for days, we can have 50 to 70K and sometimes the 100 to 130 winds. We don't necessarily get them out here, but last year there was a, there was a hundred and I think it was 135K wind gust was clocked in our area and it blew down pivots and some old buildings and stuff. So <laughs> they're strong. Yeah. So erosion is an issue for you guys in that area then you were saying? Yeah. A lot of that is related to the potatoes, sugar beets, and then the dry beans under the irrigation where, where not a lot is left afterwards. But even this past year, or after a few years of just very low crop yields, even some of the dry land that's in no-till has been blowing because it just, the residue is breaking down and even you get a sandy area that doesn't have much residue or hasn't grown a crop for a few years, even that is starting to blow. So it's... So in other words, like that's where you look at, like if somebody's saying, why would I go regenerative? Like the very first thing is holding your soil in place. That's critical. Then beyond that, then you got to look at what other things you could be trying to get out of it. Do farmers know what problems they're trying to fix? I would say there's a lot of hype in the space, especially (laughs) now. It's just really, really... (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah, it's really wet up. And a lot of times people are are saying they just want healthy soil or they want to build their soil health, but it's such a vague term and how to to know what you're doing. And so, for example, you could grow a a multi-species cover crop and you might be able to see the differences in your soil or you may or may not, depending on how much growth you get out of it, but after you put all the expenses into it, are you getting any money back on that? Like you could spend 20 or maybe even $50 an acre on seed and and seeding it. Did you, are you going to see that much of a difference or ideally more in the next crop? So that's where, that's why I think you got to solve an immediate problem before looking at building these long-term solutions. So if you want to clarify for us the difference between coach and consultant, and, and I was just thinking how you're getting paid you want to make sure the farmer's getting a, a return on their investment in you and an inve- the investment in the practices that they're doing with you what is that what does that all look like i guess maybe it's more just a difference of terms like it's i'm trying to understand what it is they're trying to solve and then we come up with a plan and in terms of it's about the return on investment to me is like if you're going to put this amount of money into something what what are you expecting to get out of it or being sure that that what you're actually doing is going to do what you want because especially in this past year if you had planted a cover crop you Mm. might be further behind because you've used up all your moisture right or you've used used a lot of the moisture that you had there so knowing why you're doing it is very important what sort of changes have people that you've worked with seen See, that's where on the dry land, and, and in this particular area, we are the very, very dry land, the, the yes. brown soils, the Palliser Triangle, which was <laughs> Notre Dame's, not, not fit for human settlement. <laughs> yeah. Which is why we have so much irrigation here. Without the irrigation, there wouldn't be a lot going on here. But there is still a lot of the land is dry land. And, and so in terms of that, I think it's more on dry land in terms of making a difference here. 
you've got to really think in much longer timescales because you might only get a chance to grow a good cover crop every few years if you've got the moisture there. So sounds like it takes a lot of patience. <laughs> it would take a lot of patience, but that's where like looking at this coming this coming year, you probably just all your your whole focus is just going to be trying to grow a cash crop. Yeah. And if you have the moisture in the fall, then it, it can be worth it, but it's not as easy here. So in terms of differences, these are the things that definitely if you can start growing things in your shoulder season, so like after harvest before planting or more more likely just after harvest because we just don't have much time in the the spring if you can be growing that like I, I do know like when i talk to people that have been doing it for decades it does build like it does you get a, a more resilient nutrient cycling and you're getting things working for you but in terms of how long it takes you to get to there if you spend say $25 an acre for 10 years, but you don't get any immediate benefits. That's that's a lot of money that you've sunk into this. And maybe in the 10th year when, say, all of a sudden we get big rainstorms coming through and we get dumps of rain and you can infiltrate the rain and your neighbor's fields all pond and you get a crop, well, then you're ahead that year. But Or I know in the, the U.S. what they've said is where they've been prioritizing the soil more, trying to build better soil aggregates and all that type of stuff. They were, or even just having the cover crop still kind of sitting there, they were able to get into fields when neighbors couldn't. Even at harvest, they may be able to be in there a few days earlier because they weren't sinking into it. They could they could get their crop off. So those are the benefits that are going to show up in the longer term. But in the short term, you got to decide how much you want to invest in it. So, are you consulting for folks outside the Palliser Triangle, or is it largely just local? It's pretty well just local here. Is what I what I'm working on now. So, you have a course for cover crops, though. Mm-hmm. So, tell us how you cover crop. <laughs> how do you cover crop? It's essentially what I've been saying so far. Is it how to cover crop? I have what I call a cover crop first plan. I, I came up with this acronym first, and it's a way to kind of just to work through the process. So it's fit. So where it fits in the rotation and what it's actually going to be doing is the main one. And then I is for implementation. So this is where you're looking at machinery you have, your labor you have, how you're actually going to do it. Mm-hmm. The R is return on investment, and I spend a lot of time in the course on that, is is going through as many of the possible things, like in terms of water infiltration or pests or compaction, building organic matter, and just working through like what what your return is. So if you spend this much money on it, this is how you track how much you're going to get back from it. So that's the R species. I put it as lower. A lot of people start, they start out with the species. And they start out with a cocktail mix or they a fancy mix of, of species and they put that out there. But to me, you got to define your fit, how you're going to implement it, your return investment or what you're, what you're trying to solve first. And then you pick the species. And then the T stands for termination because you have to have a plan for how to kill it. Even if your plan is, oh, it'll just winter kill. 
you better be thinking of, well, what happens if we have a big, long, open fall and it starts and, and you've planted a cereal and it's starting to head, or you've planted, say, buckwheat and it's making seeds, or say it's, you got a big open fall and you go out and you check and you, it sucked all your moisture out. You gotta, you can't just say, oh, well, it'll just kill. You've got to, you got to have multiple ways of killing it. So, or multiple plans in place. So, so that's how I go about it. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, it comes down to that you shouldn't be doing it just because it seems like a good thing to do <laughs> or with vague benefits. Like, I, I really think it should be very similar to any other input you put on the farm. You should be expecting, I put this out here, I get something back for it. If I'm a producer in Western Canada, or if you're listening in the States, I would be thinking right now, if I was listening, how do I know if this course is right for me? Or who should be taking the course? Who benefits from the course? My expertise is mainly in my area, but it does apply broadly across the prairies because we're in a season-limited and generally a moisture-limited growing mm-hmm. area. Mm-hmm. In the northern Great Plains, I think it, the border really doesn't mean anything to, to nature, so I think it would fit in that area. But I have had people comment that they, when they look at the framework, they think it should, like in terms of the, the framework and how you kind of go about it, it would, it would apply broadly to, to just about any area. But you just have to look at it through the lens of if you're looking at it from Ontario that I've created it here, so you have to adapt it to your area. But it, it would fit in the same way because, say for example, in terms of return on investment or in terms of what you're going to solve, in Ontario or say east coast of the U.S., you do have a long winter. You can grow cover crops that will overwinter, and most times you have excess moisture in the spring. So that's where you just have to think through. Okay, so you can say, okay, well, moisture, moisture use. Actually, I wanted to be using moisture. So, right. what can I plant that is going to use the moisture and make my land fit for planting earlier? But then you just have to think through the same framework. So, right, that must have a huge impact on ROI where you live for these practices. Definitely does. And if we get to, there's been. Uh, announcements from the federal government or there's been rumors of that they're going to pay for cover crop seed or they're going to pay for carbon sequestration or they're going to there's going to be certain things they're going to do and if they get to the point where they subsidize cover crop seed or practices that that changes things too because then you think they should i think if they want to get widespread adoption they should yeah they're cover cropping right now yeah, there was a survey, and I forget what the number was. Like it's it's that they did out of the University of Manitoba. It's still a small amount, and in my area, yeah, it is a small amount. Like it's, single it's digits, main... or oh yeah, yeah, I would think yeah. it's it's single digits. Um, yeah, I would think so, especially considering the current year uh, we're yes. at, like where you yeah. where you could hardly grow a crop. So, so outside our current moisture conditions, there's so much talk about it. <laughs> But very few people are doing it. Just one little point I was going to say is down in the U.S. where they did do, where they have had incentives for many years for just paying for the seed. That's where they had the greatest adoption. And then people were able to learn how to fit it in. And then, of course, every farmer doesn't want to let go of the subsidy for the seed. Then they can also start seeing some of the benefits that show up over time. So, yeah, I do think that if there were incentive for cover cropping, 
to be able to either pay for the seed or pay for some of the machinery upgrades you might need, but that would help. In terms of why people aren't doing it, I guess there's two things. There's first of all, there's mindset. And a lot of it is that the younger generation is coming in and saying, hey, I want to try this. And the older generation says, nope, I did that. It didn't work. <laughs> I have heard that. I've heard that from a few different people that just said, just like, I can't convince my parents to try it. Or even say on a larger farm where you have an established, you have a large farm and you've got many, maybe not many, but you've got farm managers and you pitch the idea to them and they say, oh no, we don't have time for that. Mm -hmm. That's probably the biggest reason for not. Another big reason is that the system is working. Down in the US, there was one particular one that was really interesting as a cotton grower. I heard on this podcast called Fieldwork. And they interviewed this cotton grower that's been using them for 10 years. And he had, he went to cover crops because he just had carpets of, what is their, I forget the name of the weed right now, but one of those weeds that they have the big problem with, it was it's, um, oh, pigweed, I think was his problem. But he had just had carpets and carpets of it. And it was all resistant to whatever he sprayed. And so he was kind of forced into cover crops. But he said, as he learned how to make the system work, he says it's a whole lot easier now. I guess there's those three factors. It's mindset, it's getting people to try it. And then it's until your existing solutions are not working, until you reach a point where you can't control things the way you used to, then mm -hmm. that's when you're going to start looking at them. And I think that's what they found. I think it was SARE, the Sustainable Agriculture Research and Extension down in the US, S-A-R-E. They had a really good cover crop economics report. And that was the one of the, the main driving factor was that's when they made sense, was when people had resistant weeds. I believe that there's some documentation of the program in some county in the States, I forget where it was, where they did pay for the cover cropping and they interviewed producers about the net benefit. I think it was on Kiss the Earth or whatever that show was with uh, not Matthew McConaughey, but that other... Natural Born Killers guy, Woody Har Harrelson. Woody Harrelson, that was... Yeah, what was it? it was kiss, the, kiss the Earth? Kiss the Earth? <laughs> kiss, the, kiss the Ground, I think, or kiss something like ground. that, yeah. Yeah. But it was great to hear producers talking about the net benefits. What are the net benefits of doing that practice? Here, the benefits are going to be slower to realize because we just don't have that big season. When you can have something green until Christmas and then sometimes it overwinters and then starts growing right. again in February or March, that's big. That makes a big difference. So the benefits are going to be slower to see, but this is where the the most innovative farmers are really getting onto the relay interseeding of cover crops, which I had first came across in, I think, North Dakota and Minnesota, where they were planting cover crops within corn at the... I think the V4 to V6, somewhere around there. And actually seeding it in with drills, like especially made drills. And so in terms of maximizing your benefits, doing that interseeding, like in the US, some areas they can grow two crops in a year by interseeding a crop into the existing crop and then you harvest one and then you get your next crop going. But this is just using it for cover crops. So the idea is that you control your weeds or you spray your herbicide and then you go in and you plant this and it kind of sits there. It's past that critical weed control period. So it's not going to affect the crop, but then when the crop starts to mature, then it can take off. So in terms of getting benefits, that's about the, the only way to get 
really get a long growth on it because trying to plant after harvest, it's dry. And trying to plant even just while harvest is going on, there's just not, the people just aren't available. So in terms of the immediate benefits, I think, first of all, holding onto your soil is the most important thing. So if that's what you're doing, then then you've got your money back right away if you're not blowing or losing your soil. And then I think the next phase is going to be working at enhancing the no-till so that you've got even more of a cover to help crowd out weeds and prevent some of these weeds from getting established. So, What about things like organic matter, soil moisture holding capacity, nutrient exchange? Those are the ones that come in time, and I call those ones the, the your medium-term goals. And even in terms of organic matter, I call that a long-term goal. Like it's something... Mm-hmm. It's going to take it's going to take a long time to build that up. It's like this, I'm trying to think of the word. It's more like a cycle that once you so say you first of all you just learn how to grow them. Cuz it is a whole new crop. Like it's not you're trying to do something completely different in your system. But if you can get it working where it's it's crowding out some weeds or it's holding the soil or something, then the next phase is that if maybe it captures a little bit more snow or it or it gives that cover on the soil and holds in moisture better. And then you start building a little bit better soil structure up top, and then you can start infiltrating more rains. You're not technically holding more water, but you're capturing more of that water. And then as you capture more water, then you have more potential to grow more crop, grow more either cash crop or cover crop. Then as you hold more water, then you can grow more cover crop. And then I guess it's a, it's a system that builds on itself over time, but kind of that initial hump and in getting going on it is the is the challenging part. How do you measure the ROI? That's the biggest thing. That's why I say you got to solve something that you can get immediate payback on. So the biggest thing, so again, if you can have your seed paid for, then your biggest cost is going to be the labor and equipment for putting it in, and that's going to bring your cost down. You said, if you can get your seed paid for, can you get your seed paid for now? Not that I'm aware of, but this is where then you look at what is your cheapest option, which is normally cereals, but even at today's prices, your your cereals, even just grabbing some uh, cereals from the bin is going to be an expensive cover crop (laughs) seed. But but even then, using your cereals is is still going to be your best cover crop because it's, it's already cool season adapted and it can handle frosts and we know how to grow it. So the easiest way to get return on investment is, is first of all, to cut your expenses. So starting out with simple, simple species or just only doing one species, maybe mixing some, but just getting your cheapest one and going from there. So that's how you do that. So say, for example, you say, I want to grow my own nitrogen or I want to put a legume out and I want to grow my own nitrogen. You need a lot of biomass before you're actually making nitrogen out there. And hmm. so, yeah, you might see, you can, you can find those nodules early, but the very first thing that a legume does is use up all the nitrate that's sitting in the soil already. So if you had, say, 30 pounds left over and you planted a legume, the very first thing it does is pick all that up and then it's going to start making you nitrogen. And so at today's nitrogen prices, if you got a net of 20 pounds of nitrogen, 
even then there, you're probably made $20 worth of nitrogen. So did you get your money out of that seed? It is really tough to make the ROI work. Do farmers have a problem? Are we doing something wrong? Is there things that need to be fixed? Are we running problems where, hey, we can't do that anymore? In terms of any type of practice? or Anything. I mean, I'm talking like, hey, do farmers know what problems they have? Can they connect the dots? I could fix this with cover cropping, weed control, soil erosion, not making enough money, or biology in the soils scorched. If you listen to uh, John Kempf, they talk about nitrogen usage scorching the earth, the nitrogen to carbon ratio, stuff like that. Yeah, and that's where I don't think it quite works that way. So a <laughs> lot, a lot of our do tell. There is definitely if you only ever grow a crop and you're only ever if you're using high chemicals and high synthetic inputs, your soil is not working the way it can work in terms of nutrient cycling. Like it's not as efficient as as what you could get from a natural system, but as long as fossil fuels are cheap and <laughs> nitrogen or fertilizers are cheap, yeah, then that's going to be the most economical way to do it, even if it's maybe not the best for the soil. But they aren't going to be, are they? No. We've got a little no, hiccup they... here with World War Three. <laughs> yeah. And everything that's come before, COVID and fertilizer prices. And, and I think we are so used to smooth working supply chains mm -hmm. that we could always just get we might be upset with prices but we always knew we could get it i think we're on that change and that's where economics comes into it is that if you've got good supply of all those products and everything is working and they're you know relatively inexpensive switching to a more biologically based system is not going to make money it's probably going to cost you money but when the time say say if we can if we can get this um, relay interceding of cover crops where say the example that I've known of I learned it at University of Guelph when I was going there in the late '90s early 2000s was just the red clover into winter wheat. People have been doing that for I think I think it's centuries. Like it's just it's it's a very old practice. You spread some spread clover onto winter wheat and if you can get it to grow before uh, like at that frost seeding time and it just sits under the winter wheat and it grows there and then you harvest the winter wheat then you get a nice red red clover crop but the problem is the broadcast just is not consistent in the prairies so it's just not warm enough to really be consistent on that so that's where we're looking at these interceding relay interceding systems where you're actually drilling it in or scratching it in right into the into the ground. You're planting your cover crop into the existing crop so that it can sit there kind of under the surface and grow. And that's where if we can learn how to get these things working, then yeah, there's there's a lot of potential there. But until we get to that point, yeah, there's a lot to learn. Everybody will say something is not going to work in my area because my area is different. Well, as a consultant, you must run into that. There must be oh, a lot yeah. of, well, I can't do that, or I can't do that, or I can't do that. And we do have the consultants that come up from the US or Australia or wherever, and they say, oh, you're just not trying hard enough. Or, <laughs> People love hearing that, by the way. It'll work here. It'll work <laughs> here. We can make it work here. But our season and our moisture really does limit things. When you actually think about it, and you think about that our soils are frozen for, what, maybe five months of the year, there's some potential there, but not a whole lot. We just have such a short, intense season that 
what we see working down in the U.S. where they can grow a cover crop over the winter and grow all their nitrogen or do a bunch of things over the winter or in the shoulder seasons, we just can't make that work here. We have to be realistic in what we can get out of it. So, Everybody wants to use this as a marketing tool. When are farmers going to get paid for it by the people that want to market it? Yeah, that's a whole other issue. I have seen in the press that's outside of the mainstream ag media, more in the, I guess you'd say more in like the uh, environmental side of things or in even in just mainstream press, say they're looking at these claims of the companies that are saying they want to be all regenerative. And they're saying, I'm not quite sure how that's going to work. And they're putting out long timelines, 10 years or something like that. Well, if you don't know, who knows? Exactly. Like they should, shouldn't they be hiring you? Well, I think they have their own consultants, but they're looking at ways to... Do they, or do they just have marketing departments? Sorry to cut you off, but I just... It is a lot of marketing. <laughs> and the problem is, is whether the farmer's going to get paid for it. I love marketing, don't get me wrong, but I mean, I think that's a huge, huge issue. I think what they're trying to do, or I think in their ideal world, they could market their stuff as regenerative or climate friendly or carbon neutral and not have to pay a premium. <laughs> Just put all your shingle as saving the planet and expect people to buy it. I think that's the strategy. If consumers buy it and if they don't have to pay the producer more, but I'm not sure how they're going to make that work. I think the only way really is if producers get some type of either a, a subsidy to start learning how to do it, or I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, really the best thing would be is if we had extension or if we had, if we had people out there sh that could help people do it, like how we used to have extension. I know in Alberta here, right. we lost all of our extension. So. Well, I hope Jason Kenny's listening. <laughs> I don't <laughs> think it would matter. <laughs> no. Yeah. He's got bigger problems right now. Where do you stand on all the other tenants? of regenerative ag farming. I, I think it's been more or less formulated by, by Gabe Brown in his book, I would think, is sort of what I refer to as the five tenants. Or do you, you specialize in cover crops? Do you dabble in those other things? Do you need them to make this work? They're the good framework. And I think they, they actually, I think it was Jay Fuhrer and some of the other people in his circle that I think, I think even he says that there is, they don't have a particular person that came up with those initial five no. Soil health principles, it was more something that evolved over time. Maybe you should mention them too. Yeah, I was going to say, so it's it's mainly about, first of all, just keeping the soil covered, whether it's living or dead, mm -hmm. some type of mulch, and then living plants as much as you can, mm -hmm. and bringing in diversity, which is the... Diversity, yeah. More species. Yeah. And then... Low herbicide, like no herbicide use, synthetic. Yeah, minimizing tillage. Some people put in pesticides in the disturbance part, and some people add a sixth one and talk about lowering your synthetics. So that's number four. And then the final one is is livestock. And yep. they all do work together. But in terms of cover, so say like when you're working on, on a prairie, like keeping the cover, I think, is, is fairly doable. But there were areas in my area that got three inches of rain in the growing season and that was it no yeah so I when you're it. working off that it's tough the most important thing is trying to hold the cover the next thing is living root see this is where i think people kind of get you've got to have realistic expectations so if they say living root as long as possible maybe down in north dakota or in um, in ontario maybe you can have a living root most of the year and up to freeze up and then it sits there and then it 
like Fall Rye or Harry Vetch and it comes back to life in the spring. But here, living root as long as possible in this past year, if there's no soil moisture there, or if you're trying to rebuild your soil moisture, you shouldn't have a living root there. That's that's not going to be good for you long term or over that next season. So you just got to be realistic. And, and even in tillage, tillage, I think is, so even like to me, the, the idea of the strip tillage, I think is an important thing that could be explored here. Strip tillage or just because you're, when they're talking about minimizing tillage, if you're doing strip tillage, or if you're just doing, if, say if you're doing strip tillage, you're only tilling a small area, but you're still leaving all the soil microbes and everything alone in the inter-row area. So you're just doing that little bit there. Or if you're just having to do a little bit of tillage every five years or something like that, just to kind of, you're not, you're not talking about plowing it in. It's just mixing those layers again and, and getting those nutrients back down to where they are. So maybe you deep band your nutrients every five years and you're going to do a little disturbance then. You kind of mix things up. And, but it, when they say minimize tillage, it doesn't mean you have to go no-till or you, that you can't be touching it at all. So, Well, it's likely the same for a lot of those areas too, like reducing compaction. I mean, maybe reducing, obviously not eliminating and, and synthetics and whatnot. And I feel like we could talk about this subject endlessly. Yeah. And just even this initial conversation, it, it brings so many more questions. That's mm-hmm. my impression, right? Mm-hmm. But I think a good place for people to start would be this course. And I think it's a relatively small investment. Like you talk about ROI, what is your course cost? And you were offering a discount, I believe. Yeah, I've got it priced at 159 Canadian. The way I figure it, you could probably do it all in in a half a day, or you could spread it out over a few hours, over a few days. You have a month of what I call office hours. So you can kind of drop in on a Zoom call and get some extra help. Okay. So there's a little bit of consulting that goes with it. There's a little bit. Yep. There's a little bit. Or people, if they've got a little more complex problem or they want to do, they want to get a little bit more detailed, then they can always upgrade and get some one-on-one help. But the DIY part of it is that a lot of farmers just want to sit down. They don't necessarily want to sit at a conference or they don't want somebody telling them what to do. They want to learn it themselves. (laughs) Exactly. That's where it works. It's all self-paced. So you sign up for it and you have a month to get through the videos, but then everything is download, like all the transcripts and the PowerPoint are, are downloadable and any of the worksheets, because I have worksheets in it too. So anything that you download is yours to keep. Well, I would suggest it's a, gr- a great gateway drug to working with you. Like how are folks physically working with you as a consultant? What does that look like? In my area, it's a lot of planning over the winter and then in the field, in the field scouting, but then there's a fair number that are entirely remote work where we can just do things either by phone calls or uh, Zoom calls or, or even just meeting in person a few times and mm-hmm. we get the plan in place and then they do it. A lot, a lot of farmers don't necessarily want uh, somebody looking at everything they're doing and, <laughs> and trying to recommend the whole program or have like a big program. They just want a little help get going and I'm there to help them out. So, and nice. where the course works is that then I don't have to be going through the same thing over and over again. And it's a very a low cost way of just getting into it. So 
Yeah, I would suggest any producer that was interested in the content of this conversation to check it out and, and make that investment and just take a quick look too and see if that's something for them because I'm sure it gives them a much better idea of the scope of what's being done and what can be done. And then talking with you personally, I think would be awesome. Just to take us out of this conversation, how do people get a hold of you? What did you want to offer as a discount? Let's go from there. Okay. The easiest way is if you just remember plants dig soil. Yeah. Like that's the website, plantsdigsoil.com. And, or you search it and you'll find it. And then you just see like on the website, everything links from there. I've got a newsletter. I've got the, the course, the course link is right there. That takes you right to, right to the course. And of course, social media and everything that, and my own podcast too, it's all in there too. So, so the offer was that if you put in future as a coupon, then you'll get the $20 off for the first 10 people that go to it. So love it. Well, I think yep. there'll be a lot of interest in this and there's a lot of interest just in the word. I think it's getting used a lot, but I think those those practices will come to mean more and we'll have more understanding. And I, I think we're doing things very good in terms of uh, feeding and clothing and keeping people warm in the world with our farming practices. But I do think we could, we could do better and, and then really what, with what, what land is worth. So you look at what land is worth. You literally don't want it blowing away. You look at what things are costing, if you can even get them this year, between fuel and and fertilizer and and chemicals have gone bazonkers. And then you look at what commodities are worth, right? And then you look at what governments and consumers are wanting. There's a lot of forces at work here that I think will make your services more, more valuable in the future. And you must feel a strong sense of, of purpose too around what you're doing for folks, eh? Definitely. Yeah. And as I said, I've always had this interest in me and I started promoting it more and putting it out there and I've had the response. So it's been a thing that's built over the last few years. And my main difference against most everybody else is that I'm trying to be a little more realistic in the expectations of what we can <laughs> actually accomplish here. So if you're, if you're getting, if, if the hype, if you're getting tired of the hype, hopefully when you come to, to see or listen to my podcast or check out the course, you'll see, I, I try to break through the hype and try to get to what's actually going to work on a farm. So, well, thank you for sharing with us a very practical view of all this. And it seems very reasonable what you're, proposing and and just education i'm sure and experience will help producers a lot it sounds like a great tool for almost anybody at times used properly yeah thanks for having me here yeah no i really appreciate it so folks go check out plant dig soil and you'll find scott there and you can listen to the podcast you can take the course you can talk to scott and see if it's a fit for your farm Thank you so much for joining us on today's episode. We really appreciate that you would spend some of your valuable time with us. We would like to give a shout out to Stephen and Veronica and the whole team at Pod Sound School for their talent and hard work in editing and producing these episodes. Be sure to check them out at www.podsoundschool.com. Also, Nicole Doobie from Eberhard Egg Solutions. Thank you so much. Nicole's really passionate about making these episodes come to life and sharing them with you. Please, let's stay in touch. You can communicate with us on any of the social media platforms. You can also check us out on YouTube. And sign up for our newsletter, growingthefuturepodcast.ca, so you don't miss an episode. Do not forget to check out the Aberhart family of companies online to aberhartfarms.com. 
suregrowth.ca, convergencegrowth.com, and abrahardagsolutions.ca. Links are in the episode notes. We would love to hear from you. Reach out and tell us what you like about the show or what we could do to improve upon this. And we will send you some free swag. Until next episode, folks, let's keep it real. Growing the future together. Oh.